Well, good evening. My name is Naman. If we haven't had the privilege of meeting yet, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, <clears throat> a privilege of mine to be walking us through the sermon and then God's Word tonight. If you're just joining in or hopping in, we've been going through uh, a sermon series through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, going through the teachings of, of the old Reformed faith. And we heard a couple of questions read tonight, particularly on adoption, which is where we land. Last week, Pastor John talked about the doctrine of justification, and rather than doing kind of blankly through uh, their abstract theological text, he walked us through the narrative of Jacob and Esau, uh, which I thought was a very poignant way of, of approaching this doctrine of justification. So, taking a page out of his book, we're going to be walking through the doctrine of adoption through this narrative found in Exodus, uh, primarily of the birth of Moses. And so let me read the text for us, and as is customary, if you would uh, respond with the part of the people, thanks be to God afterwards. Let's read God's word from Exodus 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw a child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Way back in American's history, back in 1865, when we have the famous Emancipation Proclamation being declared by the government, by Abraham Lincoln, which was this amendment that freed all American slaves in the country, there was a lot of uh, study and research done of what then these slaves did when they heard of this news, what happened after the Emancipation Proclamation. And surprisingly so, for a lot of the slaves, this made almost no practical change in their life. A lot of them stayed on the plantations that they were serving in. That's because they may have heard the news of this status change, of, uh, of this governmental decree that had been passed down, but it almost made no relational, practical, real-life change. They were left with questions then: what do I do? How do I make a living? Where do I go? Who do I trust? And so for a lot of them, they ended up just staying on the plantations that they were serving at. And so as we walk through this narrative uh, in Exodus, as we think about this doctrine of adoption and as we're kind of couching it 
under this broader idea of salvation in Christianity, we think about what adoption means for us and how it's more than just a mere status change. Right? We talk a lot about justification. We talk a lot about this courtroom drama of being uh, pled not guilty because of what Christ has done for us. And, and hallelujah, amen, praise God for that. But also the next step is what difference does that make in our life? What relational change, what practical change does that make for us? And what we'll see here in this narrative as, as Moses is being adopted is that throughout the entire story that this indeed was an act of God's grace. God was responsible for this. <clears throat> we'll also see the dire straits that God deliver us, delivers us from out of the depths of slavery and sin. So let me just walk through this narrative for us as we talk about a lot of those ideas. This idea of God adopting us. God is the one that enacts this. And he adopts us out of slavery and sin. And so we just kind of picked up right here on Exodus 2. But to give you a little bit of background on what happened in Exodus 1, <clears throat> Pastor John again talked about Jacob and Esau last week. And so we have a lot of the patriarchal history of, of Israel in Genesis. So we have Jacob Esau and then Jacob bore 12 sons. Uh, the second to last of them was Joseph. And we all know the story of Joseph with his magic dream, technicolor robe, right? That all of his brothers were jealous of. And so his brothers sent him into slavery. And Joseph goes to Egypt and he's in prison. And through this ability to be able to interpret some dreams of the Pharaoh, he kind of ranks up in power and authority and influence in Egypt. To the point when where Canaan is experiencing famine, Joseph's brothers and Jacob come to Egypt because they need food. And so there's this grand reconciliation that happens, and the, the reflection is quoted in your bulletin from Genesis 50, the last chapter of Genesis, that uh, all these hard circumstances, God, you worked for our good. And that's almost how Genesis ends. And they're still in Egypt. So a lot of, you see a lot of Hebrews and, and Israelites in Egypt. And so Exodus 1 opens with, now there's a new Pharaoh, a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. And he sees the Israelites growing in number and population and influence, and he's almost threatened by us. And he's kind of like, wait a minute. I don't know if I want this to happen. So let's kind of curb this before it gets out of hand. So then he tries to set the Israelites under slavery and under, under the, uh, the, the work of the Egyptians. And even in the face of that, the Israelites are continuing to grow. And so then the Pharaoh sets out this decree, this governmental decree to say, all Hebrew baby boys will be cast into the Nile. He's trying to curb uh, Israelites' growth by infanticide. So he's trying to kill off all baby boys uh, that were Israel. So that's where we pick, off in our, uh, pick up in our narrative, which is, kind of helps put some context to some of the things that we just read. So let me walk us through the passage again, uh, starting in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The, Le the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. There. So a little bit of that, that, that background information helps paint a picture to what, what's happening and why things are happening this way. So right off the bat, we see Moses' parental lineage coming from the tribe of Levi. If you track along uh, the book of Exodus and, and the rest of the Pentateuch, you know that the tribe of Levi is this priestly tribe. 
this tribe that's supposed to help mediate and administer God's law. So God foreshadowing a little bit about where Moses is to come from. And so this man and woman give birth to a child, and the text says she saw that he was a fine child. And that's a, that's a very interesting way of stating that. Like if I could have just said, he was really good looking, he was healthy. But they said he was a fine child. And quite literally, it means they saw that he was good. They saw that this baby was good. And any Jew hearing or reading this would know that this is a hearkening back to the story of creation. When God is creating the universe, when God is creating the world, God created light and the stars and the moon, and he saw that it was good the second day, the third day, the fourth day. So they saw that the child was good. So in many ways, Exodus, this entire book, served, or even this narrative, serves as a creation-like account for the birth of the nation of Israel. Right? We get God's law coming from this book. So much of that identification comes from Israel's adherence to the law, which was then mediated by who? By this baby boy, by Moses. And so you see what Moses himself is doing as he's hearkening back to he was good. He's, he's, he's trying to get you to recall God's good work in creation. So already you see a lot of thematic groundwork, groundwork being laid here. And then as the, as the story goes on, she hid this baby boy three months, obviously out of fear of this decree uh, that Pharaoh sent out to kill all Hebrew baby boys. And can you imagine trying to hide a baby for three months? Like, I, I, my son is, is nine months, and I'm trying to think back to the first three months of his life, and we were just inundated with, like, sleepless nights and, and screaming his head off and things like that. And so how are you, how are you at all supposed to hide this baby from, from your neighbors, from people who are passing by? Impossible. But in that, you can imagine their fear. The parents' anxiety, their worry, their paranoia. And many of us, we live in this same type of crippling fear. We may not live in the same circumstances as this story, but we can understand the context. We can understand relational brokenness. We can understand addiction or, or financial instability or, or what's going to happen to my kids. Our battle with sin, these circumstances, can understand, we get to empathize a little bit about what Moses' mother is going through. She hit this child for three whole months. Has there been anything that we've been hiding for three months? For three years? For, for three decades? What is God trying to bring out of us as we read this? <clears throat> as we continue through our narrative, picking back up in verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And we'll pause there. So, at the end of this agonizing, stress-filled three months, it becomes near impossible to hide this child anymore. Uh, so Moses' mother decides to hide this baby. And she, she does so by resorting to making this basket and, and casting Moses off into the Nile River. Um, and so she fashions this basket made out of bulrushes and, and pitch, and, and all that is to describe, she's trying to make this as, as waterproof 
as possible, right? She's doing everything that she can from where she's standing to protect this child. She has this obvious maternal compassion to protect her son. Now, there's much discussion as to whether she actually placed him in a basket and then sent him down the river and, and, and hoped for the best. Or maybe she put him in a basket and tried to hide him among the reeds and maybe like check in on him every now and again. But we don't, we don't know what her intentions were. But what we do know is that she had ultimate faith in knowing that God would save her child. If you can imagine the anxiety and the stress and what she must have felt when hearing this decree, her last resort was to place this baby in a basket. And it wasn't to say, well, whatever. She, she knew the consequences to that, but she ultimately had faith that God would deliver this child. And so we see a lot of practical advice for us as we see what she had done. It's not as though as to say, everything is on God. It's, it's all about divine sovereignty and God's responsibility. So if God is going to want it to be, let it be. I have nothing to do with that. Or, on the same hand, it's not about everything that we can do or, or everything that's in our control and, and being type A and plan every step along the way, but it's, it's both and. We see Moses' mother doing everything that she can to be faithful in protecting this child, but ultimately it was God's enacting, God's grace that would deliver him <clears throat> to save him. Ironically, she's actually obeying Pharaoh's decree. She casts her son to the Nile River. But little did she know, or did Pharaoh know, that this would be the very boy and that would not only be delivered, but be the deliverer for the people of Israel. And continue on with some of these thematic ties as I was studying this, I was just amazed by the small little things that were in here. The word for the basket that is used to put the place the baby in is the same word that we see back in Genesis chapter, somewhere in between 6 and 9, where it's the word used for ark in the Noah narrative. <clears throat> Delivering a child in this ark, in this boat, to travel across safe waters, when the waters were meant for death. This baby was placed among the reeds in the riverbank. And the same word used here for reeds could also be used to reference the Sea of Reeds, or the Red Sea, which we'll see later in the book, that the Israelites passed through the waters to escape the judgment and wrath of Pharaoh, foreshadowing God's deliverance through water. In verse 10, we see later in this very passage, Moses' name in Hebrew means the one who draws out of water. So again, God is at work. God is responsible for delivering and saving his people, and he does so by washing them through water, baptizing Moses, baptizing the nation, the entire nation of Israel itself, to bring about his grace, to bring about his adoption. And we'll continue in this text. There's still a ton more, picking up in verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, same word there, sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw a child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. 
Then the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. <clears throat> no father there. So as, as Moses is, is cast off into the Nile, as his basket is, is, is stuck into a bush of reeds, uh, who is the one that finds Moses? And the text says, none other than the Pharaoh's daughter. None other than the daughter of the one who is directly persecuting this entire nation. So while one would expect this person, this daughter, to exercise condemnation and wrath upon this child, Moses is met with compassion and pity. Behold, she saw that the baby was crying and she took pity on him. And it's not as though she just saw a cute baby that was crying and and had pity on him, but she knew exactly who he was. This is one of the Hebrews' children. She knew what the implications were. She probably also knew why this baby was floating alone in a river. But instead of reporting it, instead of just tossing that basket over, she takes compassion on the child. And that in itself is a work of God. To know that God is at work in somebody like the Pharaoh's daughter to save this child. And then we continue on in verse 7. Moses' sister, who we later know to call Miriam, she also displays an immense courage to intervene. She sees that the basket is found, none other than the, the Pharaoh's daughters and her servants, and she rushes over there and she says, can I help you find somebody to nurse this child? The, the, the fact that she does that in and of itself is, is an act of courage for somebody from a Hebrew girl with no status, no power or authority to approach somebody of royalty. God-given bravery. And then in verse 8, her bravery is then matched by her intellect, her wittiness, and opportune thinking. Because who does she bring to offer Pharaoh's daughter to help nurse his child, but Moses' mom, her own mom. And then verse 9, we see what a turn of events. So not only is her son rescued, not only is he taken into the one place that somebody would least expect him, expect to find him inside Pharaoh's own house, her own son is returned to her in her own arms. And she can continue to nurse him. She can continue to nourish him. She can continue to love on him, watch him grow. And the kicker, she's paid to do so. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's ridiculous. She's paid to do all this. If you ask my wife if somebody would pay her to be a stay-at-home mom, she would look at you like with a white face, right? <clears throat> And so Moses, then now, uh, there's this arrangement for Moses' own mother to raise this child, to be paid to do so. And I bet you that Moses' mother and father and sister would, would teach this child as much as they can about this God that saved him. This God that saved his people. This God that was bringing about a blessing to their very people. God knows exactly what we need before we even need it. 
And God provides for us way more than what we might expect or what we might ask for. Uh, a year and a half ago is, is when we moved to Pittsburgh, and at the time, even months before making the decision, we, we were agonizing over it. We were, we were actually grieving, uh, coming here, grieving, having to leave where we were coming from. And when we, when we finally made the decision to leave Boston, uh, and before we even had a chance to ask, okay, then where are we going to go? Two weeks later, we get a cold call from Pastor Matt. Like, out of the room. Like, he called our pastor and he said, we're looking for somebody to be an assistant pastor and do campus ministry. Like, two things I love doing. Like, how do you got that? How do you do that? And then we came, and before we even thought about what it was like to move to Pittsburgh, Matt calls us again. He says, do you need a place to live? Obviously, we hadn't even started to search. It's like, the house next door to, to, to us is opening up. And we're like, okay. Like, God was at work. Now, it doesn't always happen that practically, and we're not trying to say that believing in God will, will fix all of your practical and earthly problems, but it is to say that God knows exactly what we need, and he gives us way more than we, what, we, what we thought we wanted and what we thought we were asking for. And we'll close off with the last verse of the passage. It says, When a child grew older... She brought him, that is, uh, probably Moses' mother. She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of water. So then Moses has, however old he is, he has a couple of years of, of uh, being raised in his own home, uh, being nursed by his own mother, being uh, in a family with his original immediate family. And then he's brought into uh, the Pharaoh's household, to become the son of the Pharaoh's daughter, to be adopted uh, by the Pharaoh's daughter. And while they might, at relationally, might seem uncomfortable, at the time, though, it was the utmost privilege. Moses would then be raised as a prince. He was brought into a house of royalty. No doubt he would be raised in the cultural elite ways of Egypt, where he would have their education and, and all these wonderful backgrounds, and in all that time of doing so, we know that Moses will later renounce his Egyptian citizenship, but we know that Moses is being raised for work far beyond what he can see. There's a reason why he has both feet in, in both these camps. Uh, and Moses' adoption story is actually the beginning of a story uh, of his people's deliverance. And we know this as we read the rest of Exodus. Moses' adoption is the beginning of the story of a man who would deliver his people to freedom, who would bring them out of slavery. But it also points us to another story of a man who would do the exact same thing. A story in which he too was born under the rule of a tyrant king. Also born under the decree to slaughter Hebrew young boys, whose parents also hit him for many months, and ultimately ended up fleeing to Egypt to protect him. In the same ways that Moses' birth was a creation-like account for the birth of the nation of Israel, that foreshadowed the deliverance of the people through water by baptizing them, passing over death, bringing on new life. As it mentions in Hebrews, Jesus Christ whom Moses' story witnesses to 
is the greater Moses, is the founder and perfecter of our faith. We are not adopted into earthly royalty like Moses was and may see some of those practical implications, but we are adopted into a heavenly kingdom where we are called the sons and daughters of the living God. Where we can go to him in prayer and say, our dear Father. We witness God answering prayers of of desperation in the face of death and opposition and suffering and persecution and sin. And we find ourselves preserved and delivered. Jesus Christ, the firstborn of creation, makes it possible that we would be invited into the family of God, that we would would receive the eternal benefits of his kingdom, the blessings promised to us for those who place their faith in him. We have been adopted. We're no longer abandoned. We're no longer enslaved. We're no longer sentenced to death. But God looks at us and he sees us as my precious child. And that's the good news. That's the gospel message. Um, there is a, I don't know if you've heard this story, there is a, a pastor in South Korea, Pastor Lee Chong Rak. And <clears throat> one night in 2009, he was awoken at, at 3 a.m. by a phone call. And it was a very cryptic phone call, and all he could hear on the other uh, end of the line was, was saying, at the front door. This voice kept saying, at the front door. And eventually they hung up. <clears throat> and so he knew immediately that something was wrong. And so he went to the front door of, of his church, which was also uh, his, his house. And there, laying in, in front of his front door, was a cardboard box. And when he opened the box, he found uh, a baby inside. A baby. Pastor Lee, at that moment, was, was faced with this conflict of, obviously, an abandoned baby, but also trying to understand who would, like, what circumstance would drive somebody to leave their own child in the front door of a complete stranger. <clears throat> Later on, he would reflect on a lot of the things that would force people, that would pressure people to do such a thing. He realized he was in a society and a culture with very little government assistance, with uh, financial strains, with social stigmas, uh, and, and pressures for young single women, and especially for those who gave birth to children with physical or mental disabilities. <clears throat> and so, while, while realizing this, he decided to create uh, a box, a hatch box, uh, in front of his church. Uh, and since opening this baby box, as he called it, in 2009, he has inevitably received over 630 abandoned children, most of whom were mentally or physically handicapped, some with notes of regret from their mothers, some with birth certificates and registrations of these children, and some with nothing other than their mobile cords still attached. And he took them in. And he raised them as his own children. And he did the best that he could to adopt them, to, to bring them into uh, foster families that would adopt them so that they could have a better life. And this is no doubt a beautiful story, but it's also surrounded by so much brokenness, so much even controversy, so much criticism 
A lot of people afterwards would criticize Pastor Lee to say, this, this monk's just enabling more uh, unready uh, young parents to abandon their children. And his response was that a lot of these children would be abandoned anyway. And if I saw an abandoned child on the street, then I could not turn blind eye. And so say what you will about what brought him to this decision. But it brought to mind for me as I was listening to this story, as I was watching this documentary, that adoption is such a beautiful thing. To see somebody uh, receive a child into their home, to call them their son or daughter, for this child to grow up to one they call their parents mom or dad, but it's also covered in so much brokenness, so much heartache, so, much, so many circumstances that would lead to this. And while earthly adoption is this way and, and offers a glimmer of hope, of, of love and grace, we see ultimate hope when we are adopted by the living God, by our Heavenly Father, that Christ provides a way for us to enter into a home, to be adopted out of slavery, out of sin, so that as we sit here every week, week in and week out, as we go into each other's homes for community group, as we share meals together, we can look each other in the eye and call each other brothers and sisters in Christ because of what he has done for us. And this is the gospel that we preached, that we have been adopted, we have been received as children of God, and what a privilege that is. And that there are others out there that are looking for that kind of belonging, that are looking for a Savior in Christ. And so, would you be with us, the hands and feet of the good news? Let's pray.